Uh, let me also just say one thing. It, it's, it's just so hard to follow Michael Kelshaw. I mean, that accent. <laughs> I, I mean, the dude could read cereal boxes up, right? And we'd all be going, that was deep. <laughs> High fructose corn syrup. Amen. <laughs> right? It's a blessing and honor to be with you. As, as God gave me this vision to plant this church called Blaze Christian Fellowship in Santa Fe, it's kind of a weird name, I know. What he gave me was a vision to reach the men of Santa Fe, northern New Mexico, and literally the state as a whole and the nation at large. But I knew the only way that that would get done and as God began to pour this vision into my heart is that we reach and make impacts and inroads among the men. As Cardinal said, as we open this day up, that we as men in New Mexico are failing badly. When 60% of Hispanic babies are born without fathers and the number goes higher on the reservations, that's not a winning situation. All you have to do is look at the statistics of New Mexico and we are first in all the wrong lists and last in all the right ones. And so to be able to be here this morning and to really speak into men's lives, hoping and praying and trusting that God's gonna use you guys to go and make impacts and inroads in your families and communities, knowing that the gospel vision that God has given me is now beginning to be fully birthed through Acts 29 and Mars Hill and Desert Springs and Redemption Church in Rio Rancho. It's, it's really the realization of a vision like Daniel had on the banks of the Euphrates River. So I'm so excited. But I need to start off by telling you something. Because my topic, as you can see, is fighting to be a godly husband and father. And the minute you all hear that, your minds go to different places of what that means and and really what that looks like. Have you ever thought what that looks like or what that means? What does it mean to be a godly husband and a godly father? Well, let me just say this right up front. Being a godly husband and being a godly father has more to do with who you know than what you do. Don't miss that. Being a godly husband and being a godly father has more to do with who you know than what you do. You see, far too often in far too many churches, we define godly men by what they do. And and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There are certain things that we as godly men are required to do. That God has called us to act out in faith and response to the gospel in our lives. But that is secondary, not primary. You see, being a godly husband means that you have to know God himself. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 3, verse 3. He says, unless a man is born again, he will never see the kingdom of heaven. Now, I know that that term has been overused in every church circle today. But when Jesus said those words, they meant something. What he was saying literally is that unless you and I are born from above, that unless you and I are given a spirit that we of ourselves did not possess... Unless God literally infuses his character and his nature into our hearts, we'll never see God, we'll never see his kingdom, and we will never know what it's like to be godly. We have to realize this. 
You see, the Bible speaks very clearly. Michael Kelshaw set this up perfectly, that our salvation is of God holy. We had nothing to do with it. And now because of God's grace and mercy in our lives, we are now heirs of his kingdom. We are now in Christ. And now that we are in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That new is a new character and a new nature that only God gives. And you need to know this because far too many churches are filled with far too many good dudes. You know what I'm saying? We have a lot of churches that have a lot of good guys, but we don't have a lot of churches that have godly guys. And the sad part is, as as leaders, I stand guilty that we allow it because they're doing good things. They give, they they serve, they they bring their family to church, they they pray, they're doing all the good things, and we allow the good things to really circumvent what God wants is his character and nature in their lives. But here's what happens far too often in churches and in community groups that you've seen. When the trials come, when the attacks happen, the true nature, the true identity is revealed. Reminds me of a story of a a man who was affected by the recession, lost his job, and so he was looking frantically for work to try and provide for his family and his needs. And as he was going through the one ads, he, he noticed this ad that was placed by the zoo in his town for a job. And so he went over to the zoo, inquired about the job, and filled out the application. As he was filling out the application, he discovered that they were really looking for a very odd position. It seems that the gorilla that they had had for so many years had passed away, and they were looking for a man to dress in this very elaborate, very, very real gorilla suit and just kind of do gorilla things till their next gorilla arrived from Africa. He says, all we want you to do is kind of sleep and eat. How much does it pay? And he found out the pay. He goes, I'll take it. And no one will ever know that it was me. No one will ever know that it's you. And so they dressed him in the suit. And sure enough, I mean, it looked like a real silverback gorilla. They led him to the cage. They opened up the door. He walked in and sat down. And not before long, people started coming. And he pretended to sleep and lay down. But after a while, that, that was just boring. So he decided that he was going to try out some gorilla things, right? So he stands up and begins to walk around, beat his chest, make gorilla sounds. And it started to attract people. And those people brought with them peanuts, and he really liked peanuts. So the more he acted, they began to throw peanuts, <laughs> right? People began to throw peanuts. And so as, he, as, as he's receiving these peanuts, he's going, hey, if a little's good, a lot must be better. And there's this tree that they had installed in this enclosure, and he climbs that tree. The crowd's going nuts. He's on the top of that tree beating his chest, making all these sounds, and there's this rope that they had had for the real gorilla. He begins to swing on this rope. And the crowd's just cheering, gathering. He begins to swing higher. And he's just reveling in in the notoriety that he's now garnishing as this gorilla until he hears a loud snap. The rope is broken and he has swung so high that he is now hurling out of his enclosure into the enclosure right next to his, which was owned by the lions. 
as he hits the ground and gets to his feet, not 20 feet away from him is a lion. He's freaking. He begins to panic and he begins to scream, I'm not a real gorilla. I'm just a man in a suit. Get me out of here. And in one failed swoop, the lion jumps on him, pins his shoulders to the ground and says, would you shut up or you're going to get us both fired? I tell you this, I I tell you this because far too many men in far too many churches are pandering for peanuts, right? We serve our wives, we we lead our kids, not because we're godly, not because we've been infused with the character and attributes of God himself, but simply we want our marriage to go well and our kids to behave. We pander for peanuts. And all the while, our identity is concealed from the people in our community groups and in our churches. And we wear the suit. And many of you men wear it far too well. You don't realize that God in Jesus Christ has afforded you a whole new identity that is yours by grace through faith. And as you step into that identity, God begins to work in you and through you. See, some of you men this morning, as you you even just think about the possibility of, or, or what it looks like to be a godly man, you think of guys like your pastor or community group leaders, not realizing that in Christ, you are a godly man. You see, in Christ, you now stand justified before God Forever, There is now no condemnation in your life. And although the process of sanctification is not fully realized because God is working that out in your life at this present moment, you are accepted before God. You are godly. And you need to own that. If New Mexico is going to change, if my city, Santa Fe, is going to change, godly men to stand up and take their position in Christ. You here in Albuquerque need to stand up and take your position that God has afforded you with him as an heir of his kingdom. But realize that as you do this, you will face very real and very serious opposition. You see, make no mistake about it, we as godly men will be engaged continually in warfare. That's why the title of this message is Fighting to Be a Godly Husband, Fighting to Be a Godly Father, because it doesn't come naturally, and we will be opposed every step we take. But here's the great thing. Because we are godly, because God has given us his nature, we don't fight for victory in these areas. We fight from victory. Jesus has won. We now stand in what he has accomplished, not in what I need to accomplish. And the same is true for you. But make no mistake, as we face these battles on a multitude of fronts, we are going to face real enemies. And the Bible tells us that the first enemy that you and I will face is Satan himself as well as his horde of demons that followed him in rebellion against God. Let's be clear. Satan does not want you to succeed as a godly husband and father. 
And for far too long, he has made much havoc here in the church of New Mexico and New Mexico at large. He doesn't want you to succeed. He doesn't want you to make impacts and inroads in your family, in your community. And so he will fight and oppose you every step of the way. Know that. Some of us discount the spiritual aspect of our warfare, and it's wrong. I'm being dead serious in that I can't count how many attacks I have endured leading up to this event here today. My youngest daughter, Amarisa, three weeks ago, right around the time that I got the the email from Carlos on what I would be teaching on. It's bouncing on a trampoline. As far away from me as this man is from this stage. And just jumping with her sister and her cousin goes to like how the kids, you know, they jump and, and then they bounce back up on their feet. Except she tries to do it like this, shatters her bone in a cast to her hip. You go, well, that happens. And, and yeah, it does. But you've got to realize how that has changed our whole structure of our home right now. The whole, the whole schedule. How we bathe and, and, and how we drive and what we do. There's been a lot of sleepless nights that me and my wife have spent serving our daughter. And, and I know that Satan could use this to distract, distract me from what, he, what God has called me to do here today. Shortly after that, my son, in the middle of the summertime in New Mexico, comes down with strep throat. Never had strep throat. But now he does. Add to that. And then add to that, that my son and my middle daughter are now suddenly have been struck for the past two weeks with terrifying nightmares. Now, see, one thing in itself, I go, okay, it's life. But all these things added together, I start to go, wait a minute, there's real opposition here. There, there's, there's really something going on here to, to detract me from what God is calling me to do. One of my pastors on staff who, who has had seizures in the past but hasn't had them for, very long, for a very long time has suffered really some massive seizures in the past few days. Stuff like this happening all the time. Spiritual warfare. God does not, uh, God knows that Satan does not want us to succeed. And so he says in his word how he will attack. And I want to look with, with you guys this morning at, at what God shows us about how Satan attacks and opposes us as godly husbands and as godly fathers. And the place that I want to take you to is Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we know it well. We don't have time to fully unpack all that this entails because I want to hit so many other aspects of, of what this really looks like. So we're going to kind of hit this and move on. Because this isn't the only enemy that you and I face. But in Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit gives us insight to how Satan opposes and attacks. And we start off by seeing verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
Command these stones to become loaves of bread. There it is. We see the first way that that the enemy attacks. He attacks us when we're weak and at our weakest points. See, we read verse 2 as if it's nothing, don't we? And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah. After three hours, I'm hungry. (laughs) After 40 days, what we really have to realize is he's near death. And and notice what Satan offers. He doesn't offer him, hey, Jesus, since you're the son of God, why why don't you create a beautiful cotton hammock with a shade? Why don't you get on up out of here? What does he say? Why don't you command that these stones become bread? You're struggling with hunger right now. You're wrestling with this. And he attacks right there. Know this, men. Satan will attack you where you're weak. Spending any time in New Mexico, you're either going to hear or learn how to fight. Right? First thing you learn about fighting in Santa Fe is there's no such thing as a fair fight. You fight to win, and so you do what it takes. So you will attack someone. You're going, oh, you're kind of weak there. I'll leave that one out. No, you're going to go for that. Take the leg, right? Satan's no different. There's such things as a fair fight. Satan doesn't fight fair. He goes for our weaknesses. And you need to know that. Because so many of you, we, we do the ungospel thing and we hide our weaknesses from our community groups and our churches and people who love and care for us gospelly instead of saying, hey, here's where I'm weak and I need to be on guard. And we struggle silently. We wrestle silently with weaknesses and Satan is dominating and winning. I challenge you after this session, as you guys go to lunch, with someone you trust, whether it's your community group or your pastor who's here, whoever's here with you, I challenge you to go to them and say, hey, do you see any areas of weakness in my life that Satan could attack? Because here's the fact that I found out in my own life. There's a saying that goes, you don't know what you don't know. And, and, And sometimes I become blind to weaknesses in my life because I make excuses for them. Meanwhile, my pastors and friends who love me see him and they're going, hey, dude, you need to guard this. You need to watch this. This is an area where the enemy can come in and attack and gain a foothold. What are you struggling with right now? What weakness that you've hidden that the enemy has been playing havoc in your life? Why haven't you shared it? with someone in your community group, with someone at your church, so they may love and encourage and, and support you and hold you accountable and really go to war with you in this area. Satan loves to isolate us. It, it, it exasperates our weakness. Satan will attack you where you're weak. See, but here's the thing, guys. We gotta stop making excuses for our weakness and we need to start literally dealing with them soberly. Guarding them. Once he attacks us where we're weak, we see the next way he attacks. Notice what it says. Verse five, we, we skip ahead. Then the devil took him to a holy city 
to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. What does Satan do here? He, he, he challenges his power. And in so doing, he's looking for vulnerability. See, the Bible says in, in the book of Philippians, that in chapter 2, in verses 5 through 8, that Jesus, being fully God, did not consider it robbery to make himself of no reputation and to take the form of man and to humble himself to the point of death on the cross. He didn't. He was fully God, and yet he came to earth and laid all of it aside to redeem us. That means when he healed the blind, and when he raised the dead, and when he walked on water, he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. He, he had the, the ability to pick up that part of his nature, but he forwent doing so. And so Satan's going, hey, since you're God and you have the power to throw yourself off the temple and everyone see that the angels will catch you, take your deity up. It's yours. Seeing that this is an area of vulnerability in Jesus' life, and obviously it wasn't because notice what Jesus says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him up on a very high mountain. So, so before we move on, let me just say this. Satan is constantly testing you for areas of vulnerability. He's looking for the chink in the armor, so to speak. He's constantly testing. Wouldn't it be awesome if Satan tested us, tempted us, and then he's like, oh, I, can't, I can't get that, dude, I'm done. That's not how it works. He's constantly looking for an in. Constantly looking to see where you're vulnerable. And then the third way that he attacks, notice what it says. And again, the devil took him up on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This final way that we see is that Satan attacks is he attacks in the thing that's most valuable. What is most valuable to God? Worship. Our worship. And Satan attacks in this area where what's most valuable, hey, I'll give it all. Just worship me. It'll be all for you. Here's the shortcut, Jesus. You can have it all without the cross. And notice what Jesus says. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Our worship is only for God. But here's the truth. The enemy is going to attack you in the things that you most prize. In the things that are valuable to you. They're going to attack in your family, with your children, and with your spouses, and at your work. He's going to, to attack in those areas. And we need to be on guard. So how do we as godly husbands and fathers guard against these attacks? How do we respond? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he says, Be sober-minded and be watchful. 
For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So what we need to do is, first of all, be sober. We must think clearly. We must think circumspectly about the spiritual attacks that are happening in our lives. C.S. Lewis said it this way in his book, The Screwtape Letters. There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We need to think sober that we will face spiritual warfare regularly. And we need to to think circumspectly and carefully of what doors we're opening in those areas. Peter also says by the power of the Spirit that we need to be watchful. Literally, we need to pay attention because we face a very real adversary, the devil. And then finally, he says that we are to resist him. The best defense is a good offense. We are to resist him. We are to literally oppose him, stand against him in word and in deed and in every opportunity that we can. We are not allowing the devil to have any foothold in our lives, as Paul says. We're not going to give him any room to operate. We stand in opposition to him. Well, the second enemy that we face is godly men. As fathers, It's our flesh, isn't it? We all have a sinful nature. We all have an unregenerate part in our life that is constantly trying to draw us and and to lead us away from the truth of the gospel and to believe things that, that God and his word have not revealed to us as truth. Let's just be honest as husbands, right? I know some of you guys that are not married, never been married, you single dudes, you, you, you probably can't even imagine this, but there's days that we guys, as married guys, get up and don't feel like being married. It's, it's just hard. It's rough. And I realize that many of those times is my flesh just wanting to focus in on me. And as I respond to situations that are going on in my home and in my life in a fleshly way, it's not producing godly results. And the flesh is constantly at war with my spirit. Constantly trying to to get me off of the mission of God in my home as a father and as a husband. The flesh stinks. Its desire is to dominate. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So do you realize that even we as Christians, as we do things out of fleshly motives and desires, it's not pleasing to God? Right? But hey, I do them. Guilty. I'm just going to speak very frankly with you guys this morning. There's times that the only reason that I'm loving and serving my wife is because I want to have sex. 
Not because I'm genuinely concerned about the well-being of her soul. Not because I value her as a child of God and that God has placed me in her life to love, serve, and cherish her. There's times that the reason that I'm leaving my kids is not because I'm looking down the road at raising a godly generation after my kids that one day my grandchildren would call upon the name of the Lord. The only reason that I'm serving them right now is because I want them to shut up. To behave. And God goes, that's the flesh. That stinks. It's wrong. It's not glorifying to me at all. And I battle. And I know you battle. Daily. Sometimes even moment by moment, huh? You battle. That doesn't change your position in Christ. You're still godly. God has called you. He has saved you. He has justified you. You just need to step back into the position that he's afforded you. But we battle the flesh. The third enemy that God tells us in his word that we battle is the world. We battle the world on every front and in every way. Not a single man in this room is not affected by the world's influence on people and marriage particular and on kids from what is streamed over the internet and TV and radio there is an agenda there is a message and it's being pushed and as our brother Michael covered so graciously and so eloquently in Ephesians chapter 2 it says that prior to Christ we all once lived our lives according to the course of this world that all of us were literally going with the flow and direction of the world and that course and direction of the world has been set by none other than Satan himself but see now that God calls us in his grace and his mercy he calls us from going with the flow and he literally places us against the flow And so we now stand as lights, as as beacons in this dark world, and we stand against the flow and pressure that the world is pushing. How many of you ever river fished here in New Mexico? Yeah, you you all know that as you as you work the river, as you're working upstream, there's a constant push by the river and its force against you. That's the picture here. See, once we were going with the flow, and now we as godly men stand against it. But that force is still there. It's still pushing. And the world has influence in many different ways. And and the Bible says it this way. Uh, Particularly, first of all, it it says in John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, we as godly men, we need to really guard 
the influences in our lives and in our family's lives so that that influence doesn't corrupt. We, we battle that. We as God, many to stand against that. And so that's what we're fighting against every day on multiple fronts. But what are we fighting for? What are we fighting literally to be? We are fighting to be godly men. So what does that look like? Well, godly men repent. The, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs Chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. We as godly men need to set an atmosphere of repentance in our homes before our wives and our children. We fight for repentance. When we fall, when we sin, when we hurt, we own it. We own it. We own it. We fight for repentance. That's hard. This week in preparing for this message, a man who I love in my church very dearly comes in and says, I I need to talk to you. I'm like, I'm like buried. I need to talk to you. And begins to proceed to tell me some things that have happened between one of my daughters and theirs. And it grieved him so much. He's like, we need to get this together. We need to resolve this. And I could have said, hey, can we do this next week? But I called up my daughter. We had this meeting. And in the process of this meeting, I realized there were some things that I needed to repent of. So I said, hey, I, I just need to confess this and I, and I need to ask for your forgiveness in this. And my daughter looked at me like, wow. That, and I could see why my daughter was so quick to go, hey, I, I'm sorry, I messed up. Would you forgive me? As I modeled that repentance out, God, I may not only repent, but they also lead and love and live like Jesus. The book of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33, we don't have time to fully unpack that, but there's four things there that, that we as godly men should be doing, that that should be a part of our character and nature. First of all, it says that we as godly men should love our wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a selfless, sacrificial love. Godly men exhibit this as they respond in worship to the Father who has so loved them and offered his grace and mercy toward them. Godly men protect their home. They're they're willing to lay down their life for their family. Now, I, I get this. This is New Mexico, right? So many of us are willing to take a bullet for our wives and for our kids. Right? I'll, I'll take a bullet. Some of you had so many horrible marriages. You're going, I'm just willing to take a bullet, right? And, and that's not a good thing. That's not what I'm saying. 
But how many of you are willing to die to self for your wife and your family, to put down your goals, your ambitions, to literally love and serve your wife, to lead like Jesus? Godly men pastor their homes. We, we lead them in all the ways that honor and glorify God. And then it also says that godly men provide for their homes. They nourish and cherish their wives and their children. That's how we love and serve our wives. And, and I'll leave you with this. Godly men train and instruct their children. And that's a battle. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, and we all know this, right? Train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they are, not, when they are old, they will not depart from it, right? Now, we, we hear this term, train up their child, and, and we, all, we, we know what that means, that we're to instruct our, ways, our children all the ways that, that please and honor and glorify their father to whom they belong. But I don't know if you fully understand the picture that's painted there in that passage. Because you see, in the Hebrew, the way this is painted is a mother who offers her breast to her child's lips to really stimulate their appetite to nurse. And so we as fathers are to create an atmosphere where we're really stimulating the appetite of our children to know and follow Jesus. And so it's not through external compulsion, but through inward motivation. As they see you living and loving Jesus, it it literally stirs in them a desire to go, I want to know the God you know. And I want to serve the God you serve. You see, as you model repentance, they're going to go, they're going to look at themselves and go, there's sin in my life that I need to repent of. As they see you having a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus, they're going to say, I want a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus like you have. We're to train up our children. It's not just simply, hey, read your Bible. Hey, go to youth group. Hey, go to church. That's not training up your children. It's creating an atmosphere where there's internal motivation, not just merely external compulsion. Godly men do that. And there's times that we don't. We all fall short in these areas, including myself. The man that stands before you today has failed in these areas on multiple occasions and in multiple ways. And for that, I ask for God's grace and forgiveness that's afforded through the cross of Christ, and you can too, and then you keep moving forward. If we want to change the complexion of families and and complexion of our cities, this is what we are called to. This is what we must work toward. And I pray that every one of you wouldn't leave here today going, okay, I need to do better and try harder. That you would really leave here going, okay, I need to own my position in Christ and live out a godly life that's been given to me by God. Amen.